Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason Grigla, and I am a licensed professional counselor. And in my past, I'd like to introduce you to a little bit of my history since this is my my first individual or solo podcast. I started working with children in foster care and group homes um, right out of high school, and I soon became a juvenile probation officer. I worked in juvenile detention for a few years, and then I worked as a juvenile probation officer before becoming a licensed therapist. And along the way, um, as you might have heard from previous podcasts, we adopted three boys who are wonderful, and we love them, and at least two of them are neurodiverse. And as parents, I think we learned much more from that than I ever did in my schooling or my classes, partly because the field of neurodiversity is still really new. And there's a few reasons for that. The first is that I actually believe that neurodiversity is growing and magnifying, multiplying, and it's not just simply a case of better diagnoses. Although I do think we are getting more um, diagnoses and paying attention to those who struggle. And a big reason for that is that the expectations on our young adults and our adults, even our children, are higher than they've ever been. And when so much pressure gets put um, on anything, you start to see where the issues are and if there's any leaks or breaking points or weak chain links and neurodiverse students have great attributes, strengths, but they also come with weaknesses. And there's typically a reason why autism is considered a disability. Um, and that's sometimes caused simply because they are a square peg trying to be pushed into a round hole. But then there's other issues and reasons where uh, they may have glass ceilings, um, especially in executive functioning or ability to attach or empathize. It can be a number of things. And on a different podcast, we will be addressing the the 12 to 14 most common characteristics that most of our neurodiverse students end up showing. And I think most of the time, um, out of those 12 to 14 main characteristics, most young adults that are neurodiverse will have between 7 and 12 of those, usually around 10, and it can include rigidity um, and things like that. So that'll be a discussion for another day. Today, what I'm really excited to talk to you about is something that I would call it's time for a high school redo. And the reason for that title is because our students and their developmental timeline is so completely different than what a neurotypical child, adolescent, teen, young adult, independent adult would experience. And so when we're talking about neurodiversity, 
there is often a developmental gap or time lapse um, or slowness to that developmental process. But I want to go back and ask this question. When we think of treatment, we usually use the word treatment in the sense that someone is broken, something is um, needing to be fixed, something's wrong. And when we have students who are neurodiverse, we assume that because they're a square peg, treatment is needed. One of the most successful approaches we have had um, has had nothing to do with treatment. It has everything to do with relational influence. And we call it relationships of influence, also known as mentoring. And we have rarely had much benefit or um, positive effectiveness from therapy. And when we talk about treatment, we usually think of medication and counseling, possibly some newer treatments like the electromagnetic treatments they have for depression. Um, and our students, their brains are physiologically built the way they are. And there's no medication that's going to fix or change their physiology. Medications for treatment are typically involving the chemicals in the brain, not the physical aligning of the neural pathways. So you're dealing with two separate issues. And so there's no way to treat neurodiversity, but you can treat some of the symptoms. If you want to address neurodiversity, it's not treatment, it's called parenting or mentoring or helping them develop because um, that part of their brain is different and it might even be disabled, but there's no repairing it. There is a way to maximize success and understanding the developmental model and how their, um, their developmental model is very different um, is a big start to being able to, to influence their lives in the most effective way possible. Here's a quote that I really like. It says that models that describe human growth have a predictable pattern of development from earlier to later stages in which the latter stages build on what has already been experienced and integrated into our lives. And what that means is you have to step on the first stair before the second and the third and the fourth stairs um, are possible. And that's absolutely true with um, Erickson's psychosocial stages of change or development. And when we talk about Erickson's stages of developmental change, neurodiverse, especially those with high-functioning autism, um, do really well in the eight stages up until about stage three. And I'd like to go through those and describe those for you. And I want, to, I want you to either go do some research on the stages of psychosocial development and learn what they mean if you'd like to jump into this deeper. That's um, all over the internet. There's a million YouTube videos and diagrams, etc. But the first stage when there's a baby is the baby learns to either trust or mistrust. And that comes from a matter of consistency and safety and security. And if a child's needs are dependent dependably met in those ways, then the infant develops a sense of trust. If I cry, someone will feed me. If I'm in pain and I cry, someone will change my diaper. 
And if I really need to be helped, um, someone's there for me. And in the second stage, then toddlers learn to exercise will and do things for themselves. And it's called autonomy versus shame or doubt. Can I do this or can't I do this? And as a toddler, they're still so egocentric and everything is still so much about them. They know the sun rises because it rises for them. They learn to exercise their will and do things for themselves, or they learn that they can't do things at a very young age and that things are difficult or different. Now, up until this point, most neurodiverse um, children, toddlers even, have shown such major ability in some areas likely, but not in other areas. Um, Sometimes parents see that they're very slow to develop speech or interaction or autonomy. Um, And then in other ways, they might do things that are just not expected And one of the hardest ones are when a parent has a toddler who shows amazing ability in certain patterns or understanding, and the parents get excited that their their child is going to be a a brilliant genius and change the world, which they might, only to find out later that because they have really strong um, abilities in certain ways because of how their brain is aligned in their neural pathways and their physiology, that after all, there's only so many neural pathways the brain can have. And if they're strongly aligned in one way, then they are going to be lacking in other ways. Um, But up until now, their toddlers are usually a little different, but nothing to worry about. It's, It's this next stage where they really start to struggle, although we often don't recognize it as parents yet. And the third stage is initiative versus guilt. And it's the stage where they take doing their own will to the next level and preschoolers learn to initiate tasks, make things happen, carry out plans, or they kind of give up and realize they can't. Um, In a sense, it would be considered preschool depression um, from what what I would describe it as where they don't think they can be independent and they don't have confidence their identity is not developing well. And a lot of children who are abused, neglected, or go through a lot of trauma get, um, what's the word? They get oh, knocked off the rails at some point between birth and being a preschooler. And something comes along and changes and they don't learn to attach Um, or they don't learn that they can, and they learn not to advocate um, because they don't trust, and they don't have autonomy, and they don't initiate, which are the three stages that are positive development. And our students tend to still be in la-la land where where they think everything is good. There's really not a big difference between my child and other people's children, although you might notice that they act differently. Um, But typically they can keep up. And developmentally, they have not started to fall too far behind, although many of them may show signs of ADHD, um, inability to uh, be independent or autonomous. A need for comforting is pretty common. They love the consistency and the security of knowing what's going to happen and when it's going to happen 
and change is really hard. So there's not much resilience there. They're very rigid or else they have anxiety. And um, the next stage becomes even harder. And this is where parents really start to worry um, about their children and their child's ability to be typical. And it's called industry versus inferiority. So children learn the pleasure of applying themselves to tasks or they end up feeling inferior. Now imagine a neurodiverse child who still likes to play with the same big Lego blocks that they did when they were two, but now they're seven. Um, they haven't they haven't changed because they still like the same things they they always did. Or maybe since they're all of their friends at age seven are starting to like to collect um, Pokemon cards that they start po collecting Pokemon cards, but they might be willing to continue that collection until they're 20 or even 30 because they like consistency and they stop developing in certain ways. So in stage four, industry versus inferiority is around age 12 and that's right when parents start realizing my child is really isolated they're not making friends the friends they had moved away or have walked away from them and according to your child their best friend in kindergarten is still their best friend even though they may not actually do anything together anymore uh, that's fairly common the the loyalty that comes from friendships is based more on um, the fact that they don't like change and why would I need another friend? And it's really hard on them at age 12 when typicals, eight, you know, brain intellectual developmental typicals, they start to move on. And if their friends realize they're getting laughed at or made fun of because they're hanging out th with the kid who you know, wiggles in his chair all the time or who even he has tics or other types and signs of being developmentally delayed, they may need to pull away, um, which is actually developmentally an appropriate thing because in industry versus inferiority, you either make something happen um, or you let yourself succumb to your environment. And so a lot of neurodiverse students are left alone for the first time. And then between ages of 12 and 18, Identity versus role confusion. And identity is where you become who you are. You decide who you want to be more than who you become. You start to look at role models. You start to see others and compare yourself. And many of our students um, have not had, they've had very little um, experience looking up and outside of themselves to those around them or in the world, they might be assigned to write a paper um, about someone that they really admire, but not even comprehend that that is a role model for them and not get the benefit of saying, wow, they really accomplished something great. I want to do that. Um, or they might obsess about that person to the point that they could write, you know, a three, a three volume thesis and, and a biography on that person from a really clear, unique perspective, because they'll remember every fact um, about that person. So, but it will still be different. No matter how they do it, it'll be in a quirky or different way. Now, during this identity versus confusion 
teenage years is when the developmental delay really becomes apparent. And if you can imagine right at age 12, um, if you have typicals and atypicals developing at the same rate, but maybe the neuroatypicals, the neurodiverse rate is a little slower. You've got like, for example, someone going there, someone's going 10 miles an hour and they're neurodiverse or high function autism and their peers are going 12 to 13 miles an hour. It ends up not being a really big deal until you hit around age 12, 13, 14, maybe younger if they're Um, more neurodiverse or more disabled, more developmentally behind, maybe later, 17, 18, 19, um, if they are less neurodiverse or less disabled in those areas. But the the difference and the gap between the neurodiverse and and the neurotypical teen population becomes at its greatest right around 16 or 17 on average. And by then, a lot of our students have already experienced a lot of negativity and hardship. And we'll talk about that in a second. But then because they're in crises, because they're isolated and their basic needs are not met and meeting their basic needs, that's exactly the best treatment for them. That's what they need. Treatment should be what you need, not something prescribed. Unless you know what you're prescribing. I'm prescribing a friend. I'm prescribing um, how to get my needs met, how to belong, safety, security, consistency, and those those types of things. Um, so as a teenager, when they have this situation where they're not keeping up with their peers and they realize that their peers don't want to play with Legos anymore, they're not obsessed with trains like, like you still are or the weather or whatever special interest that maybe your child has, Um, they realize their peers are interested in the opposite sex and they realize their peers are, are really interested in gender role models. And maybe your child is pretty much genderless, or maybe they're hyper, hyper focused on becoming one or the other, or they're gender lost, which is something that is pretty common with our students. And some of them are, are fairly asexual or, um, hypersexual if they think that's what's going to get people's attention. But either way, they stumble through the process of becoming a teenager and puberty. And in that, they lose their high school experience, which is why we say that our students need a high school redo. Imagine how important it is to have your first girlfriend, your first crush, your first date, your first driving, um, your first time telling your parents that, no, you're going to choose to do it your way and that you actually make it happen and there's evidence that you're capable and that your peers say, yep, they are certainly making it. And as teenagers, that's what we're looking for. Our family is no longer enough to give us the confidence that we need for our our identity. We as teenagers need our peers to tell us that we are enough and that we're still doing what we, uh, we're, we're capable of doing the things that we need to become independent adults in the next stage. And most of our students are just in crises mode at that point. Someone called it the limbic brain, or he's in his limbic mind, where it's just fight or flight. And that's a hard crisis state to be in when you're a neurodiverse teen. And it's just as hard for the parents or the mentors or those who are trying to raise them um, to watch and not be able to control it, change it, 
or um, protect your child from that process. There are things you can do, and we'll discuss those in other episodes. Today, we're just going over the developmental stages. The next stage is supposed to be intimacy versus isolation. At this point, not only is a neurodiverse young adult already confused, feeling inferior, having guilt that they don't keep up, and they revert back into the negatives of all five stages before, but they become highly isolated. And instead of that happening as a young adult, um, which is a typical developmental stage for someone who's a young adult, they have to either learn to connect, launch from their parents, you know, get kicked out of the nest and fly. They have already sunken into um, many times a pit of despair or crises, including isolation at an earlier age. And most young adults in a typical development process, they struggle to form close relationships and to gain the capacity for intimate love, attachment, or they feel, um, or they end up ultimately feeling socially isolated. And we've had students that come to us that are completely capable of being a really great student. They go to class on time, they do their homework assignments, it's all laid out, they turn them in, and they're great at being students. And when they go to college, oftentimes they can actually be amazing students as long as they can survive without their needs being met real well. For many of our students, the isolation happens as soon as they leave home, where they were already feeling insecure and ashamed that they that they couldn't be typical. They've already compared themselves to their peers for years, and they're capable in, of understanding that they are different. And that, that situation we refer to comparison fatigue, and we'll talk about that on another episode for sure. Um, if they were typical, they would then move into the, the last couple of stages in their life. At this point, there's a great question of whether or not a neurodiverse student will ever get to stage seven or eight, which is generativity or stagnation, where they generate and contribute to the world, or they're still in crisis state and they stagnate or even revert once they hit the, the services cliff that comes after high school. I'm, I'm sure most of you understand that once high school ends, the state does very little and there's not much money to support uh, neurodiverse students who really need longer time to develop and get there. I will say that there is a lot of talk and good things happening to change the laws for neurodiverse young adults transitioning into adulthood, especially in the foster care system and the adoption systems. It looks like they're looking at supporting them until they're older. Uh, many places will support them after high school for up to two or three years, um, depending on the state you live in. But most places, most states, once they graduate from high school, they're done. So a lot of parents will turn to the five-year plan um, in high school, hoping to give them as much time as they can. And I, I think that's actually a really wise idea. Because the longer they have in the nest before they're pushed out, uh, the less damage and trauma is done. So what I would like to say is that when, when they start out and they're only going 10 miles an hour and all of their peers are going 
12 to 13 miles an hour. There's a huge gap by the age of 14 to 17. And that gap is so hard and destructive on the heart and the mind of someone who is developmentally behind. And it's hard on the parents and the family. There's a lot of crises. And because of that, there's two other levels of hardship and trauma um, that I'm going to talk about in my next episode that we're going to explore in more depth. And yet, these young adults, they just need to hold on and hang on. And as parents, your job is to keep them safe and keep them out of their comfort zone, but not overwhelmed. Try to keep them out of crises. And yet you can't give in to them being comfortable all the time. Otherwise, they will always revert back to the most comfortable state of avoiding pain, hardship, the unknown, anxiety, because they've been through so much already. And that's the hard part for parents is what does tough love mean when it comes to a child who really is disabled and is different and it's not their fault. And they're not just choosing to have a temper tantrum at age 14. They truly are overwhelmed because their brain jumps back into fight or flight mode to avoid at all cost any more pain and suffering that comes from the fact that they are different and their brain is different. So up until now, this has been a lot of negative um, discussion on this podcast. It's really depressing. It's hard to hear. There are solutions. There are ways to avoid or mitigate as much of the pain and suffering as possible. There are ways to help your um, your neurodiverse loved one or your student or your client, whoever this person is, is in your life. There are ways to minimize the negativity and help them move through these stages of change and development. But it is critical that they don't just go from crises as a teenager into college and assume that they can skip from stages three and four to stages six and seven. If they got stuck in stage four in the industry and inferiority phase, they have to go back to that place and fix it before they can move to identity versus confusion. And so many parents, so many counselors, so many well-meaning, love, loving caregivers want their child to be able to put it all behind them and move on and just go do what you're good at. You, you are smart or you are capable with your hands. If we could just find you a good job or if we could just get you off to college. Um, and if we're lucky enough to have a great high school roommate, then my child will shine and grow and get the confidence and the evidence that they need to move forward. But they haven't had those hallmark moments of development that they have needed yet, and they need a high school redo. So what I would like to say to you parents is don't give up. The hardest years are the teen years. The young adult years can be just as hard but at around age 19 or 20, most neurodiverse students start to want the same things as their peers did when they were teenagers. And they start being interested in being acceptable, being enough, wanting to do more. Around 19 or 20, they start really getting into maybe some industry versus inferiority 
or stage five identity versus confusion, but not if they're still in crises. To keep them out of crises, it is critical to meet their basic needs. That is really hard to do, and you might need some one-on-one help for that. But if you aren't meeting their basic needs of social-emotional belonging, they will be stuck, no matter how smart they are or capable they are intellectually. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. And I really feel bad that this is such a hard topic to discuss today. But if anything I've said rings true and sounds familiar, then you'll understand that we're on the right track and that the things we're going to talk about in the other episodes are also accurate. And I think that's what matters is honest assessment. Let's not avoid the crap. Let's dive in and clean it out and move forward. So if your child is in their teen years, keeping them out of crises and helping them be protected from the snakes when they get pushed out of the nest as a baby bird is a really important thing to do. Waiting for them to be ready to have those high school typical age experiences is just fine. Their developmental stages don't have to happen and won't happen on the same time frame that um, Dr. Erickson created for what a neurotypical looks like in his stages of developmental change. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. I'm going to talk really soon again in my next podcast alone about the negative side effects that happen through high school. It's hard enough being neurodiverse, but then you get the second and third layers of problems you have to deal with. So thanks for joining me and keep your chins up. There is a lot of hope. It needs time. The good news is time is on your side. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. 